In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. All you holy saints of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In speaking of devotion to the saints, it is important to have a sense of who we are in the first place and who they are in the second place. And so let's just begin with a look at the body of Christ itself. And again, Note that expression, the church is the mystical body of Christ. And St. Augustine beautifully expressed this by speaking of a notion of the whole Christ. And that sounds at first glance very strange. Well, what do you mean the whole Christ? Is Jesus split apart? But what he means by that is the whole Christ, the head who is Jesus, and all the members of his body, which would be us. And note how that is predicated on a fundamental oneness. There is one life in the body, and that is the life of Jesus. And you know, the Lord himself emphasizes this. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me so that you live and bear fruit. For if you are not in me, you will neither bear fruit, nor will you truly live. And so right away, we are speaking of a fundamental oneness of shared life. And that fundamental oneness has a number of consequences. One of which is this. Contrary to the thrust of much modern language about faith and religion, you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is completely separable or distinct from mine or from the relationship that everybody else in this room has with him. And it's really important that we catch this because salvation doesn't happen because Jesus saves me. Rather, I am saved because Jesus saves us. Note the difference. Sometimes we have it in our head, Jesus saves me, and Jesus saves you, and Jesus saves you, and somehow we come together to be his body. No. Jesus saves us by making us his people. He doesn't save individuals separately and then gather them. He saves individuals by bringing them into his people, by bringing them into his body. And so note then, we're also saying that if I belong to Jesus, I belong to his body, to his church, to that communion of all of those who share life in Christ. This is the origin and the meaning then of that marvelous expression in the creed, I believe in the communion of the saints. 
that is not first and foremost a, ref a reference to the sacrament of Holy Communion. It is a reference to belonging to the body into which we have been incorporated. And this communion is something intrinsic then to who the church is and to who we are as Christians. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't belong to the body of Christ. That simply doesn't exist. Whatever fantasy any individual Christian might have regarding that is a different issue. But the simple fact of the matter is, if I have been saved by Jesus Christ, I must be incorporated into his body. There is no other way this works. And it's this fundamental oneness among the members of the body which is the ground of our devotion to the saints. In fact, traditionally then, recognizing this, we recognize death doesn't separate us from each other in the sense of cutting us off. Death rather changes the manner of connection. While we live, we see each other. We can physically touch each other. We can be connected in a way that isn't quite the same when a loved one passes away. But because of that life of Christ, which is stronger than the grave, which we all share, death doesn't cut that off. And so note that there remains a fundamental unity within the body of the living with the departed. And so typically we speak of three levels of the church or three elements of the body of Christ. Not different parts like hands and feet and eyes, but different places where we find those parts. Okay? And the language, the traditional language, is the church triumphant, the church militant, and the church suffering. The church on earth, the, those who are physically alive, members of the body of Christ, in the struggle for goodness on this earth are referred to as the church militant. The church struggling, the church fighting, the church that finds itself living through the battle between good and evil in this world. But I want to stress the fundamental importance of this is not the violence of the martial metaphor. Some people fall in love with that, and that's how we get angry zealots. Um, the fundamental thrust of that is recognizing that it is a struggle to grow in holiness and to grow in goodness. And yet that struggle has meaning, value, and direction. It recognizes that it is within the time we have been given on this earth that we grow toward salvation, assuming we use that time well. Or it is in the time that we have been given where we grow away from salvation. We disconnect ourselves. Um, and the ultimate answer toward, uh, with regard to that growth, has it been into salvation or away from salvation, is 
with regard then to the other two levels of the church. Assuming that it has been growth into and toward salvation, there are those whose cooperation with grace, whose surrender to the movement of the gospel, has been so full, so thorough, and so good that their holiness has been unambiguous. What they have done is they have become victorious over themselves. This is why that image of church militant can be tricky. It's not first and foremost the church at battle against the unbelieving world out there. It is first the believer who must overcome in battle with himself. His pride, his ambition, his deceitfulness, his fearfulness. And so those who in battle have overcome themselves and in doing so as well have stood firm against the corrupting power of the world around them and have stood firm against the deceit and the wickedness of the devil. In other words, they have done exactly what Jesus says in his initial proclamation of the gospel. Turn away from sin and believe in the gospel. They have completely turned from sin, rejected it, founded their lives on the good of the gospel. They are those victorious many that we call the saints, the truly, gloriously holy ones. And after death, they, even as they await the fullness of redemption, the resurrection of their bodies, are gloriously alive, their souls reigning with Christ, splendid before his throne in heaven. And gloriously alive, they are still members of the church. And just as they have been invested in the body while they lived among us, they remain invested in the welfare of the body now. They remain concerned for the good of the body now. They remain concerned and preoccupied with the well-being of their brothers and sisters even now as they share the glory of Christ in heaven. So know what that means. That intensity of concern for the church, that desire that many others be saved along with them doesn't die. It is gloriously alive, reigning in heaven. And they remain devoted to the church, their brothers and sisters elsewhere. And that is the first grounding then of devotion to the saints, is they're devoted to you. Before you've ever turned to call upon a saint, the saints have been and remain devoted to you. Note how wonderful that is. Devotion to the saints doesn't begin with me. Because even as I was coming into the world and on the day of my baptism, there are those in glory who have been praying for me. There are those in glory who have been and remain concerned about me. The third level of the church we will attend to tomorrow and over the next several days with our novena for the departed. There are those who have lived and grown towards salvation, but in a partial and incomplete way, who at the end of their life still had some attachment to, 
some affection for sinfulness or indifference or wickedness, who perhaps in their process of conversion had never managed to repair the wrong that they had also caused and left behind by their sinful actions. And so note, they have been forgiven, but there's still an attachment to what is not good within them. They have been forgiven, but they never fixed what they broke. And so there's still something lacking. And in his mercy, the Lord allows them the opportunity to become purified. They missed the chance to completely become purified while they lived. But they did enough. They did enough that they can continue to be purified. The difference is those who are in purgatory can no longer help themselves. That's what earth is for. We can help ourselves here. And the saints in glory can help us. But the suffering church, the church being of those souls being purified in purgatory, need the help of the other parts of the body to help them along in this process that they might swiftly pass into the heaven that has been promised them. But note how wonderful that is, that death then marks a different stage of concern for us. There is the concern of the already glorious for us. But then there is the preoccupation that those of us who are still working out our salvation with fear and trembling on this earth have for our brothers and sisters who are likewise as imperfect and incomplete as we are, but who now also need our help. And this gift of time we have been given is a gift we can use likewise to help them. Those who have cut themselves off completely from the body, well, that's a whole different story, and we already know about that outcome, I hope. Um, So that having been said, The focus today, however, is precisely upon our relationship with those who now share the glory of the Lord and his victory in heaven. And one of the questions that often comes up is, well, why would we have devotion to the saints? Why can't we just turn to Jesus? So let's just start right there. How many Gospels are there? No. Four written canonical Gospels in Scripture, but in truth there are five Gospels. There are the four written inspired Gospels out of which we proclaim the truth of salvation, and then there is that fifth Gospel, which is how you live it. And it's important that we recognize this. There is a fifth gospel. It is not written anywhere in a book. It is rather how you write it with your living of it. And this is why we turn to the saints. Because note what the gospel does. Note what the message of scripture says. Consider yourself alive to God, therefore, in Christ Jesus and dead to sin. That's a wonderful general statement, but let's be blunt. It leaves us with the question of, great, 
how do I do that? And it's one thing to say, well, look at Jesus, but one of the problems there is Jesus never sinned. Jesus didn't have a bad habit he had to lay aside. He had the beautifully different task of never picking a bad habit up in the first place. Note how we have then something about, yes, Jesus is the model. Yes, it is the life of Jesus that needs to assert itself in us. But the particulars of my life are not the same as the particulars of yours. I am born into a setting with certain advantages and certain disadvantages. I come into the world with certain opportunities and certain sources of frustration. I come into the world able to do some things and not able to do other things. That's the truth, isn't it? Well, note then, how I live the gospel is not going to be the same as how you live it. It can't be. Because if it's identical, one of us is not living the life God gave him. And note what St. Paul says. St. Paul, in that marvelous discussion of the body of Christ, and you have to be careful here, St. Paul wants us to laugh as he's writing this. He says, imagine this. Imagine the whole body is nothing but a giant foot. Good, you're laughing, because that's stupid. And suppose, suppose the eye is insecure because I can't hear like the ear does. I'm no good. And suppose the left hand says to the right hand, you're fired. Your fingers are even pointing in different directions than mine. Get out of here. Note how ridiculous that is. But he's also saying then, don't do this with yourselves. Don't have this attitude in your heart, I'm not as good as she is. I can't speak like he does. Who am I? What can I do? It must be nothing. And don't have this idea that this is the way you live the gospel, just like I do. Because what's happening? What's happening? The insecurity of the eye is saying, I guess I'm done. And then the body's missing its eye. Or the imperious character of the foot is saying, you all have to be like me, and we'll get along just fine. And maybe the foot will get along just fine, but the body certainly won't. And so note, in the body of Christ, there are many members and to each member has been given a certain manifestation of the Spirit for the upbuilding of the body. So note how St. Paul speaks. There is a fundamental oneness of life in Christ that runs between us. It is the one life of the one Jesus Christ. We have all been given to drink, he says, of the one Spirit. But the Spirit of whom we have been given to drink produces different effects of grace in each and every one of us, particular to us. And valuable, useful, and desirable in the eyes of God in each and every one of us. And the only way the body gets them is if we give them, if we live them. And so this idea then becomes the members of the body 
over time and by participating in the life of the body, come to identify how they can move according to the body and at the service of the body and how they can draw strength from the body. What a marvelous, marvelous idea that is. And then we recognize that saying, wouldn't it be good to know how, with the gifts I have, how I can let the life of Jesus claim me? I can look at Jesus, but it would also be helpful if I could look at somebody who started like I did, from the same kind of Sid Riddle deficit that I find in my life, and see how he or she faced down insecurity, how he or she wasn't seduced by the call of wealth, how he or she made a change in his life and was mocked and laughed at for it, but continued. Wouldn't that be helpful? No. We have such a model. We have many such models. And so note, the saints are those living gospels, that glorious fifth gospel whose pages we can consult for a model and a help of how I likewise can live the life of Jesus to the full. Now, isn't that marvelous? Even those who reject the idea of devotion to the saints are not hesitant to say, you should be more like your Uncle Harry. You notice that? There are those who say, don't turn to the saints. Why would you even look at them? You just need Jesus. And then what do they say in the next breath? Be more like him. Be more like her. See how he prays. Well then, wouldn't it be better to have an unambiguously reliable example? <clears throat> and so, as we recognize this, then, we come to something that is an ancient truth. St. Irenaeus of Lyon very beautifully said at one point, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. What a marvelous expression that is. And if we reflect on it just a little bit, it makes perfect sense. God gave us life. He gave you life. And he gave you life so that you could live it. And he didn't give you life or me life so that I could only sort of live it, so that I could maybe live it when I get over myself, so that I could live it when I get around to taking it seriously, but so that I could live it in fullness and freedom, the way he gave it to me, the way he meant for me to have it. And note then that as Jesus redeems us, what does he say? I have come that you might have life and have it with abundance. And the saints show us the truth of that. They start in the same limited way we do but they grow in ever greater abundance to cooperate with grace, to move according with grace, 
to let the life of Jesus claim them and transform them and make them more perfectly who they were always called to be, more truly themselves. And so we turn to these, we turn to these who in the details of their living, who in the writings that they've left us, who in their lingering concern for us have both something to say in forms of example and inspiration to us with regard to how we likewise can grow toward fullness of life, but also be supported by them because they still pray for us and they are still companions to us. And so note, as we mentioned in the homily, St. John alone in his exile on the Isle of Patmos, in having that marvelously overwhelming vision of the assembly of the saints in heaven, realizes he's not nearly so alone as it would seem, that there are many. And note again how that gets me out of that dangerous idea of a narrowly private and exclusive relationship with the Lord. Because let's be honest, if it becomes relentlessly, it's just about me and Jesus. In the end, it very quickly becomes just about me. In the end, I find myself alone trying to live my faith. In the end, I find myself alone with myself and not so much with the Lord. But note, when I recognize that there are others who walk with me on this earth, and that there are others who have walked before me on this earth, I am not so alone. And it is not on me to always find the right way because the way has been trod by many feet before my own and made smooth for me by their example and by their prayer. Next, note how beautiful this is because to be devoted to the saints is to have a sense of our history, to know who we are as a people. You know, that family that never speaks of previous generations, that family who loses touch with who the people are in those older photographs, is a family that is losing something of itself. And you notice in our modern world the fascination with genealogy, this idea that if I trace back that through the generations, I'll have a better sense of who I am by knowing where I came from. Well, the church has been doing this for 2,000 years. Note, when we celebrate our saints, we celebrate Our Lady, we celebrate the apostles, we celebrate the great early witnesses of our faith. We also celebrate men and women who lived hundreds of years after that. And we celebrate men and women who died only recently and whose witness still burns brightly in our living memory. And note that we say they are one with one another and one with us. When we do that, we know more fully who we are as the people of God. And so this is where ideas of a patron saint come from. And again, what is a patron? 
A patron is one who, in his generosity, supports, sponsors, and cares for somebody else. You know, for example, at an earlier age, you know, the, the idea of a starving artist was quite literal. And somebody who wanted to make his living on art worked really hard to find a wealthy patron. And what would the patron do? Here's a place where you can work. Here's some money for food. Here are some supplies. Now get to painting and do a good job. In fact, if I like your work, I will patron you, sponsor you more, and I will commission you to do things. And so note, patronage is this idea of one who is wealthier than I on a certain level, more successful than I, who looks out for me and provides me a support and an opportunity I would not have on my own. That's a much more ample idea than, oh, your name is Edward? Well, then St. Edward is your patron. Okay, Patron saints are not matters of mere coincidence. And so the idea of having a patron saint is knowing that there is one, there is a particular person or several to whom I can turn in my need, to whom I can turn in my struggle because there is a connection between us of some kind. It doesn't have to be similarity of name. That's nice, but that doesn't a good relationship with a patron saint make. It may well be. I'm a medical professional, and St. Luke was, in fact, a doctor. And we have this example of a physician who traveled with the early great missionary Paul and who not only attended to Paul's health, and you can imagine how much work he had to do because Paul got stoned a lot. (laughs) And yet also while he was doing that, learned the gospel so well, he left us one of the four inspired written works. What a remarkable figure to turn to. You know, there are those then who canonized simply as being holy husbands and wives. There are those who have been canonized as soldiers who were faithful to and great witnesses to the gospel. There are those who have been canonized, frankly, even as lawyers. And, um, but note, all of the walks of human life are represented in the glory of the saints. And why? Because all of the walks of human life are a way of glorifying God. All walks of human life can be filled by, transformed by, changed by grace into something glorious. And for those of us who find ourselves in certain situations, again, we realize I'm not so alone as I thought. There is someone here who has walked this way of holiness before I did. And that is a deep connection. You know, there are saints who struggled with their anger issues. There are saints who had to sort out their conversion over many years. There were saints who were marvelously holy even from their childhood. And again, note how that shows us the variety of ways that grace can claim a life. 
and that the life of Christ, either immediately or over time, can assert itself victoriously in our own living. So the patronage of the saints comes from their concern that with their help, like that artist told by his patron, here's what you need, now get to painting. Now imagine that, someone invested in our lives who says, let me obtain grace for you so you can go and be about living, so you can be about growing in the faith, so you can be about picking up the pen of thoughts and words and actions and writing with your life an inspired fifth copy of the gospel. Well, that's the essence of devotion to the saints. And, you know, so when we, we reflect on that, then we see this is why there are so many particular devotions to the saints. And, you know, this is where we want to be careful because, note, this is not just about asking saints for stuff. Sometimes in our enthusiasm, we can be a bit misguided in terms of how we promote Oh, no, 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 you need to have devotion to saint so-and-so for this. I was like, choose your patrons well. Choose them wisely. And don't assume that patronage is such a narrow thing that if I have something really big going on in my life, I can't talk to the saint I normally pray to. And I was like, I've got to go knock on Jude's door now. I'm sorry, you can't handle this. Jude has some real leg breakers in his union. I've got to go over there. Yeah, but we, we get that kind of rigid thinking, don't we? Um, the issue is more cultivate a relationship with a handful of saints. Not necessarily the popular ones, but the one whose example, whose witness, whose words speak with some depth and some power into your life for whatever reason. And start there. Start there. You know, we, we don't want to begin with, say this novena to say so-and-so, it always works. It's like, well, that's wonderful, but that doesn't a relationship with that saint make for me. And it is amazing how many of our faithful will say, I'm really devoted to saint so-and-so, but then it turns out they know very little about the life of saint so-and-so. Well, then that's not much of a devotion. It'd be like me saying, I really care for you, but I know nothing about you. You know? And I'll care for you again tomorrow, but I still won't know anything about you. you notice how silly that becomes? And, you know, so again, part of the power of the saints is not what they give us when we ask them to help. It is how their lives speak to us with a particularly powerful eloquence. And so if there is a saint, to whom I am turning in prayer with some regularity, then it's on me to know something about that person, to know something more about that person. One, so that my prayer be deeper and fuller, but two, so that the example, the living witness of this person might speak more powerfully to me. Um, and you know, that's really important because we turn to the saints as I said, not merely for the help they give us when we ask. Any good friend should do that. 
we turn to them because like all good friends, their presence and their example and their companionship is formative, it shapes us. It doesn't just help us. That's why the old expression, show me, who, show me your friends and I will show you who you are. Think about that for a minute. How wonderful would it be that if I could show friendship with a handful of saints, real friendship, real knowledge of them, what that would say about who I am or who I am becoming, about where I am really going. This, this is the secret. Because the truth of the matter is we become who we see. And so when we are conscious of being surrounded, as scripture says, by this great cloud of witnesses. Well, again, what is a witness? A witness gives testimony. Testimony doesn't have much value if it's not received. And so note, if they are witnesses, we let them witness to us. And in seeing their testimony to goodness, in seeing their lived witness to the transforming power of grace, little by little, the virtues of their lives, which are in the end the virtues of Jesus, begin to root themselves in us. We become who we see. If we never have time for these holy ones who have gone before us, we close our eyes to far too much of the world of grace and the world of goodness, and we limit our ability to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And remember what St. Irenaeus of Lyon said, the glory of God is the human person, fully alive. And on this day, we celebrate that great cloud of witnesses who lived their lives and ended their lives and remain to this very day and for all eternity moving forward, truly and fully and gloriously alive. And they long for that moment when we can be fully alive here on this earth, but even more so in glory with them. Imagine that. The saints in glory arguably want our salvation with more energy and more ardor than we even do ourselves. Purely, gloriously concerned for you and your salvation, why would we not turn to them? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.